This is where they are building the largest nuclear fusion reactor in the world. Yeah, a friend of mine told me I had to check out this pool. America on Main Street and at the dinner table is talking about infrastructure when 20 years ago they didn't even know what that meant. Today those towers are an astounding display of wealth, prestige and engineering first. It's impacting everyday Americans. I am against the train the way it's being done right now. New York City housing is a scam. It is a scam, 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 scam. The Shard in central London is being officially opened today and at 310 metres tall, it's Europe's newest and tallest skyscraper. Hello, I'm Fred Mills. And this is the world's best construction podcast by the B1M. Hello and welcome back to the Audio Banger Factory that is the world's best construction podcast. We are very pleased you clicked on us and we promise that we are not going to let you down. This episode is sponsored by Bluebeam and we're joined today by a very special guest who we're going to meet in just a moment. But first of all, let's say hello to my fellow co-host, you know them by now, the illustrious Liam Marsh and Luke Bly. How are you doing guys? Hello mate, doing good, doing good mate. Um, just wanted to share with, with you Fred, I, I went and checked out Key Quarter Tower this week mate. Remember that oh. skyscraper we did? Yeah, the one we did three years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. It's impressive, stunning. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very stunning. I, I, I actually looked at the video we did three years ago, and I was actually comparing the renders from back then to actually how it looks today, and they're actually on par. They are. Yeah, it's a really beautiful building, mm. really impressive building. It kind of it takes you back, doesn't it? When you when you look at it, you're like, whoa, that stands out, and mm. yeah, feels different. So, yeah, one of, one of my faves in Sydney. I mean, obviously, the bar is low in Sydney, but... Yeah, there's not many, <laughs> not many too, too, <laughs> too many good skyscrapers here. I agree, I agree. They're all in Melbourne, in my opinion. <laughs> no walk, no, not in. no walkie talkies, mate. Um, nah, mate. Nothing on that um, scale, Luke. How how uh, are you, Luke? It feels like I haven't spoken to you in ages, mate. Yeah, I, I said when we came on, you know, like it's been a week. Um, yeah, basically a week, <laughs> but it, feel, it feels like it's been an age, mate. Lots happening. Yeah, I'm moving at the moment. Obviously, I've got a new gaff, got a new house and uh, moving in. And do you know what? We were doing a little bit of cheeky painting the other day. And my missus, uh, she, she's listened to all our podcasts. She listened to some like, marketing ones, Meghan Markle's new podcast. And she goes, oh, let, me, let me listen to something else. She only puts on the world's best construction podcast, doesn't she? <laughs> She's like cracking up. She's loving it. And she goes, you know, like, I'm not really into this building stuff, but this is really good content. And I kind of can keep up with you guys, kind of. I'm like, okay, that's good to know. So a bit of feedback there, lads, from, from Mrs. Blyer. There you go. Other than that, I'm good, mate. <laughs> Just moving and watching it rain outside. How are you, Fred? You gorgeous man. <laughs> not too bad. I'm blushing now. Uh, yeah, no, not mm. too bad. Busy week as usual. Traveling the world, meeting some amazing people. I had a really good week in the US last week, meeting some fantastic fans of B1M as well. You know, it's always nice when you hear that things have cut through and there are real people listening, watching, being influenced by what you're doing. So, yeah, it's all, mm. all good. It's all good. Back in the UK now, back with the rain, which uh, which isn't so nice, but, but there you go. Uh, but it's all good because we are joined by a special guest in this episode, as I said, Matt Wheelis from Nemeshek, who is Senior Vice President of Strategy in the Building Construct Division at Nemeshek Group, which is the parent company of Bluebeam. How you doing, Matt? Very well. How are you all doing? Good to talk to you today. Good to have you. I believe you're dialing in from Atlanta? 
I am Atlanta, Georgia, or the suburbs suburbs just north of Atlanta. Nice. Mm. Good to have you with us. Are you excited to be part of the podcast or daunted? <laughs> what would you what would you pick? <laughs> I'm very excited. No, I'm very excited to be a part of the podcast. I've admired the the B1M for a time. And uh, I thought this topic was was fantastic that we're going to get into today. And uh, also, uh, as a funny, my cousin who's not in construction, uh, Craig Lurcott in Houston, heard that I had met you at XCon and was absolutely floored. He could not believe that I met Fred Mills. He watches your YouTube channel. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> wow. I don't get that from my wife. I, my wife keeps me very grounded. She's like, what? People care about you. People have met you. What do you mean? <laughs> she keeps me very good. That's nice to hear, Matt. That's very nice to hear. I'm, uh, again, blushing again. So <laughs> good, good to hear. Um, now, we're going to get to know Matt a bit properly. Well, a bit properly? We're going to get to know... Yeah, start again. We're going to get to know Matt properly. See, you've you got me, Matt. I'm blushing. I, I don't know where to look or what to say. <laughs> we're going to get to know Matt properly a little bit later on. Uh, but first of all, we subject all of our guests to the same question, the same yardstick, so we can get to know them for comparative purposes. Going to ask you, Matt, what's your favorite building and what's your favorite skyscraper? But please don't be intimidated because the bar on this question is very, very low. People have picked buildings like the walkie-talkie in the past. Um, so don't feel you have to come up with some architectural great. <laughs> All right, very good. Now, so I, I thought about this a bit and my my favorite building is probably not even really a building uh, in St. Louis, the Gateway Arch. Uh, I visited that with my children maybe 10, uh, 12 years ago uh, as we went through and just seeing the story of the construction, what it took to get that done. And then the symbolism of, of, of the vision that that was, was talking about in terms of the, 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 the expansion West of the U S which I recognize uh, is filled with human tragedy and uh, is, is quite controversial in terms of, you know, how that was gone about in, in terms of the, the treatment of the native lands. However, uh, the, the building itself, the, the, the story behind it, and then the, the vision it represents, I, I really have admired that one. That's Fantastic a good choice. answer. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good answer. Yeah, I like that. There's also a pretty incredible elevator system inside that arch that we covered once of how you can get to the top of it. There's like this twist, it's like this elevator system that kind of curves up through the arch. It's, yeah, remarkable and terrifying in equal measure, I guess. Yeah, it, it's, it's actually amazing to go through that and you, you move through there and then you get to this observation room, which is quite small. I'm quite tall and uh, it, it's quite small out there. But then you're looking out and thinking about this, the history and the, and the you know, the vision, not only of the, the, the what the U.S. could become, but then also the vision that someone had to design such a thing and to build such a thing uh, right there on the, the banks of Mississippi. It's a fantastic choice. It, like you say, it makes... Uh... It, it, it does a lot of things, doesn't it? It creates, it, well, it's an incredible feat of engineering that you think, how on earth did they build that? It's a remarkable feat of construction, but also the symbolism and the impact and the meaning that it can have for so many people is, uh, is yeah, incredible. What a, what a good choice. That is a good choice, yeah. We don't get enough uh, shout-out to structures, you know, when people get asked this. So that's good to hear. My brother really likes that building as well, but there you go. thought I'd throw that in. You nice. like St. Louis, so nice. What's your favorite skyscraper, Matt? I, I, I'm going to pick two uh, in terms of favorite skyscrapers. One's right here in Atlanta, the Western Peachtree Plaza, uh, which was built as the Peachtree Plaza Hotel. It's a round building, so it's uh, a, a nice architecture. It's a John Portman building, so uh, like all John, John Portman hotels, at least, it has a wonderful atrium inside it. 
the construction company I started out with, uh, as I understand it, built the structure. I think they did the concrete on it. And I remember studying this construction in graduate school. They had uh, used queuing theory to uh, really come up with the optimum way to cycle the the uh, the concrete trucks, the 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 lift, the the forms, the stripping, that sort of thing. And they had uh, they did this about a cycle every three days, one floor every three days. They were going up on this uh, skyscraper. At the time, it, it's still the fourth tallest hotel, I believe, west east of the Mississippi, or maybe the fourth tallest hotel in the U.S. It's uh, still a, a quite a, a, a monumental structure, and it's it's just beautiful. And there's a restaurant at the top that goes around. Uh, it no longer does, at least till they fix, because there was a, a tragedy there a few years ago with a, an accident that involved a child. But uh, the, the building itself is is quite a nice place to stay. It overlooks, if you get the right room, overlooks Mercedes-Benz Stadium down there in Atlanta. It's still in a, a Centennial Olympic Park. It's in a great spot. Uh, the other one I'm going to name is One World Trade Center. Um, and this one connects because I was a product manager. We'll talk about that maybe if we talk career stuff uh, for a, a software company called Constructware that had a, a submittals module in there. And uh, the way the, the software is designed, it, we anticipated there would be maybe tens of thousands of submittal packet, uh, submittals on a, on a project. They had something like 2 million on this project, uh, submittals of, of of details for the, especially the structure, structural steel, because if you look at the, the way that building is designed with the facets it has, every connection on that curtain wall system was unique. And so the, it had so many submittals that it broke us uh, more than once. And so we had to respond to that. And I just thought it was amazing the amount of, of engineering effort and, and also review of those submissions that went into that building uh, such that they had this incredible number of submittal packages uh, that went into even just getting to the point where they could start building it. Fantastic choices. I think it really underlines uh, the incredible career you've had, Matt. I think many people that don't know Matt, he's widely respected, has had a huge impact over this industry over a number of years. And yeah, really looking forward to getting to know you a little bit later on with some more some more probing questions, like what's your favorite color and what's your favorite burger? But uh, yeah. And some architectural <laughs> construction stuff as well, obviously. <laughs> now, diving into this week's episode, guys, we have got Why It's So Hard to Build a Skyscraper Here, a very cool video that came out on the B1M yesterday. Also, the Richard Gilder Center Construction Progress in New York over at the American Museum of Natural History, Dubai's Vertical Forest Skyscraper, and some of your comments from the week. As they say in Spain, vamos, let's go. So first of this week, we have got Why It's So Hard to Build a Skyscraper Here, a video that came out on the B1M yesterday, all about the skyscraper boom down in Mexico. Now, a little bit of context for you guys. Mexico is home to 130 million people, and more than 80% of that population live in urban areas. Countries now seeing a bit of a skyscraper boom, as I said, due to the value of land in city centers and a desire to maximize floor area on some of the sites that are remaining and an aversion to kind of the cost of building further infrastructure to support yet further urban sprawl of cities. Obviously, it gets more expensive the more you build outwards. You have to put in trains, roads, other systems, other infrastructure. Uh, skyscraper boom is particularly pronounced in Monterrey, which is an urban area home to around 5 million people uh, towards the north of Mexico City. 
Uh, but building tall in Mexico is not easy and engineers are really being pushed to their limits. We're going to dive into the detail of the challenges and some of the things you've got to think about when building tall in Mexico. But first of all, some hot takes. What do you guys make of Mexico and its skyscraper boom? I mean, it's uh, engineering you know, like masterpiece really, isn't it? Because like what the video goes into, it's incredibly difficult to build here. Um, I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode, you know, places like New York, like Manhattan, I don't think people realize how, although it's really expensive to build in somewhere like Manhattan, you got Manhattan bedrock. You got really, really good natural means to build really high not all cities have that you know and a lot of people i don't think necessarily appreciate that um i i I didn't i certainly didn't appreciate that until i went to places like san francisco and they're like oh yeah they build the skyscrapers to be earthquake proof you know to move like loads of skyscrapers obviously move anyway but in san francisco that's um that that's vital that they move like quite a bit um here in mexico you know If I'm being completely transparent, it's not something I've done a lot of research into. So when we were doing this topic, I thought, wow, no, I I did not know that. And obviously, there's tons of history. There's historical reasons as to why um, Mexico City's in a place like this. Because a lot of people, I'm sure, would be like, why why is there this huge city built on on like a lake kind of bed, right? Mm. Like, who does that? Who chooses to do that? But there's a lot of historical reasons for that. Um, yeah, I thought it was super, super interesting, mate. And uh, some of these new skyscrapers, you know, um, are really, I think, quite delicious over <laughs> in Mexico. They, they got some nice buildings going up. And... Um, What I usually end up complaining about on the show is that skyscrapers start to look a bit samey around the world sometimes. But some of these, uh, some of these towers look really, really cool, you know, and quite unique. So, yeah, that's that's my initial thoughts. Anyway, really impressive. Yeah, the construction teams are definitely fighting Mother Nature in in certain elements, right? Like in Mexico City, um, what you know, you've got earthquakes and things like that, and. did we say in the video they moved to Monterey and then you've got to focus on high winds coming through the mountain ranges and things like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So like Monterey is, well, Mexico City, you've got the challenges of soil conditions and earthquakes. That's less the case in Monterey, but you've got more extreme weather, a water shortage. I mean, just, just to give yeah. for anyone that hasn't seen the video yet, just to give you kind of like a, a summary of the main challenges of building in Mexico, right? Unfortunately, it's not a, it's not a quick list. You've got earthquakes so there's around 30,000 earthquakes a year in the country most are small but some can be pretty devastating so that's made building codes pretty strict um as you were saying luke i think that kind of what they've done is a really particularly with buildings like the toro former is bring some of the engineering and some of the forms that have to come about because of seismic engineering and brought it into the architecture and created some very different looking very striking buildings which is pretty impressive uh, soil conditions in Mexico City. So, in case you didn't know, the capital city is built on the site of an old lake bed that was filled with sediment. So, for nations have to go down a very long way to get to to, to get to decent ground. You don't have that in in New York mm. and other cities. Space cities now very congested. It's hard to find land to build on, and when you do find that land, you've got tough soil conditions to to contend with. There's the weather, as we set up in Monterey. So, state of Nuevo Leon is prone to big tropical storms. You've got to engineer skyscrapers to withstand hurricane-level winds. And to throw throw it all on top of that, there's also been a water shortage. So the northeast region 
seeing its worst drought in 40 years. That's been affecting concrete production. You need concrete to make, sorry, you need water to make concrete. You need water to make skyscrapers. Uh, so that's mm. been affecting construction up there. There's now a new aqueduct being constructed uh, to transport water into the city. So, yeah, not not your average place to build a skyscraper. There's been, uh, yeah, some serious challenges thrown to these teams. Access to water is not one of the things that you normally end up talking about when you're doing your job planning. It's it's normally somewhat assumed. Uh, so that's that's that was to me an interesting part of this video is to see the challenge that that introduces in a place like Monterey. I've um I've not been to Mexico yet. I'd love to go, but have any of you guys been to Mexico City or Mexico? I've been to Mexico City and I've been to the the beaches. Nice, nice. What what was it like in Mexico City? You know, do you think it's a city that if it didn't have these natural what what Liam said, Mother Nature challenges, um, do you think it's a, a place that could do, you know, or benefit from having a few more skyscrapers? Mexico City, of course, is home to an immense population. And it's such a beautiful area downtown with Chapultepec Park and then the palace there and, and these, these places. So it's the, it has sort of a central park of uh, sort of atmosphere. And so, yes, I think that it would uh, benefit quite greatly from having those skyscrapers. And then also it's been a bit of a, uh, it's a, a bit controversial, but it's been a place during this work from anywhere where there are a number of a growing population of expats that have, have started into the central district there in, in uh in mexico city and so it is has uh become you know more expensive local for the for people that are are from there uh to find housing so to be able to to expand upward would create a a a different surface area when it comes to the ability to create housing yeah i've i've read i've read into that recently actually that loads of people are flocking there to work remotely right because effectively cost of living is a lot cheaper a lot of americans i think are moving there um because cost of living is a lot cheaper and you can just work from anywhere right and so this is all part of the i I, you know complicated urban fabric of a lot of cities around the world i think it's similar things happening happening in europe even you know people are flocking to cities like krakow in poland because you can have a beautiful apartment there for what you'd get as a shoebox in London, you know, and you're on the internet, you know, you don't necessarily need to be, you know, five minutes away from a city centre in in London or or wherever. So that's that's interesting to see. Um, there's some there are. I'm just looking through the uh, list of tallest buildings in Mexico City, Fred, and there are some there are some really really impressive um, towers. What what strikes me as quite unusual. I suppose unusual, maybe unusual is the wrong word, but in um, 1956, this building was completed, the Tora Latino Americana. And um, it makes you wonder like how, how a skyscraper that was built in the 50s can still be standing there strong in Mexico City with, you know, natural disasters going on and stuff. Like, was, was that um, a thing that engineers were aware of even back then, do you know, or...? Yeah, I think obviously Mexico's had a long history with with earthquakes. It's the, the obviously the seismic situation far outstrips the history of that nation. So, uh, for a long time, building there has meant seismic engineering. But yeah, it's, you're right, Luke. It's remarkable that buildings that old can still have that design and have that 
uh, factor about them. They remain standing today. It's interesting when you when you do look at Mexico, there are there are tall buildings, but they're not like in the same league of super tall, mega tall that you see in Dubai, Hong Kong, New York. It is a it's it's a bit of a shorter city in terms of its skyscraper construction. Not not to take away from the feat of engineering, but those buildings stand out and look very tall, often because there's a lot of low rise stuff around them. Uh, but you know, some of the big buildings we talk about in the video are between sort of 220, 250 meters. They look big and they are big buildings, but they're not anywhere near the league of what we see in New York, where you're up to 400, 500 meters in places. Obviously, the Burj Khalifa is 800 meters. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good takeaway when you see when you see these skyscrapers in these cities, particularly Monterey. Monterey is a very beautiful city with the mountains around it and stuff. They look tall. But if you were to pick them up and stick them in New York, they'd probably be lost quite quickly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's great to see this, you know. And a lot of these buildings, a lot of these skyscrapers. I think I said something similar last week, um, you know, when we were talking about skyscrapers as well. But a lot of these skyscrapers have been built after I don't know, like twenty twenty ten. There's just been this huge boom, and obviously, I know that's what we're talking about. But but particularly toward the end of the 2010s and the early 2020s, you can see that skyscraper production has just like rocketed. And again, that's similar to what we're seeing in London, right? Similar to a lot of European cities that are traditionally quite low rise, and it's this. I don't, I don't know if a solution is the right word, but it's sort of this outcome, this inevitable and inevitable outcome where you know, you can't just keep sprawling. You know, you can't just keep building outwards and outwards and outwards, right? Unless you have the right public transport because the whole thing just gets a bit messy, bit expensive. Sometimes the smartest thing to do is just to build up and to have those zones where you can build up. And so it's really interesting. I'm comparing the list of tallest buildings in Mexico City to the list of tallest buildings in London, and it's <laughs> and and the list is really similar, Fred. The list, like when you're looking at years, completion dates, heights, even you know, it's it's not too dissimilar. So I thought that was pretty interesting. It's it's funny how cities it almost like you get that first couple of skyscrapers that are a bit out there, a bit controversial, a bit of a bold move by their construction teams, their financiers, their architects. But then that kind of enables other buildings to rise. It builds confidence in the market. It makes people say, oh, yes, there are skyscrapers here. There's other buildings that have been built that have been successful commercially, from a construction point of view, from an engineering point of view. And it almost makes it more acceptable to build tall buildings, both to the people that are funding them and to the citizens who are living in them, seeing them, experiencing them on their skyline. I think London was very much like that. I've uh, mentioned before on this podcast that particularly well-known macho movie, Love Actually, where they're sat on a bench <laughs> south of the river <laughs> yes. looking across. And I, I, we watched it, I think, last Christmas, and uh, it was it was striking. You could only see the NatWest Tower in London. That was all there was. NatWest Tower and, or Tower 42, I think it's now called, and St. Paul's Cathedral, and that was it. And I think that movie was like 2003, 2004. Yeah. You, you can see the gherkin being built. You can yeah. see that skyscraper yeah, 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 yeah. being You can see the floors being put up and stuff. Yeah, that's... That's crazy. One thing with the, this is probably more of a question. Well, I'd be, I'd be keen to hear what Matt's um, opinion is on this. With in the video, they're talking about they the supporting pillars. They have to um, dig them fifty meters deep. Some some of them are twice as deep as New York's One World Trade Center. Um, it's effectively double the height. 
how much extra planning and costs would have to go into this to, to factor in to the construction process as opposed just to a, a standard tower of that height? The geotechnical engineering, of course, is a highly complex endeavor. Uh, soils are not consistent in their you know, strength characteristics uh, the way you would if you go to, to bedrock. So they have to go down you know, 50 meters or for those of us in the U.S., over 150 feet uh, is a, quite a deep foundation. And that does add not only a good bit of uh, engineering complexity uh, in terms of the, the geotechnical work that goes on, there's pre-planning, a lot of holes that have to be drilled to go find the strengths of the soil that that are that is down below the ground. And then also just the amount of cost that is involved in getting to the point where you have a podium to build from is is immense when you're doing that much foundation work. Yeah. Yeah, I, was, I think what's really impressive and what I really enjoyed about lifting up this story is it just shows again what the construction industry is capable of. You know, there's these remarkable challenges being thrown at engineering teams down here in Mexico. You, as I said again, earthquakes, soil conditions, lack of space, extreme hurricane weather at times, water shortages. And still through all of that, they managed to navigate through and engineer these remarkable structures that rise above cities and can withstand what the world and elements can throw at them. And like, I predict, you know, I'm not saying that it's, it's the toughest place in the world to build, but it's it's very, very hard as compared to other markets and it, yeah for me really underlines the power of engineering and the amazing people that build stuff in this industry mm. with um this is quite interesting because it's kind of similar to what we're talking about with um the india skyscrapers um in last week's episode so when they actually do build these say if it's a residential tower or something like that because there's so little of them there's so few of them when they do actually build one the cost of actual you know an apartment is five times more than the typical house in the in the in the in the city um is that similar do we know if that's similar to a similar case in mexico when they when they build these skyscrapers it's interesting i think most of these are office buildings right now because they're quite they're quite deep plan they're quite large they're in tend to be in the sort of very heart of the city so they're they're much more geared towards the commercial market at the minute than the residential market um it'll be interesting to see if that kind of the you know the vertical rise of these cities continues whether the residential market will open up whether it will become a place to to stay i don't know um yeah the newest one that opened in september matilka is a mixed-use building so it does have a residential component in it and it would make sense that that there would be a a strong residential component in, in future buildings one of the things that would be curious to me is whether the increased cost of capital that is resulting from interest rates being a bit higher will slow down these things or will this make uh, uh, rental properties more you know more digestible to you know and more attractive from a investment perspective so the, i think the math will change a bit uh, mm -hmm. moving forward on on investment one of the things i think that's been driving some of this is yes the increased cost of land but also a quite low cost of capital that would be required to get these buildings built. Man, that Torah reformer, that used to be, I think, one of the tallest buildings in the city. Um, that is a beautiful skyscraper. That is a gorgeous skyscraper. And it's not, I don't know if you guys can just quickly Google that or if you're listening along, have, you know, open up your phone and have a quick search, <laughs> but Torah reformer, it is absolutely delicious, I think. And it's not, um the typical uh, what what is it there we go right yeah, i think they're using a lot of like the bracing that probably 
is used to stable the tower. It's on the outside, right? So it's part of the Fred's like nodding his head. He's like, yes, mate. There is a, I know the building well. There is a, it's actually, it's close to my heart because we did a, a video on that back in 2016 when it first completed on the B1M. And I worked really hard on that video and I, I remember falling in love with that building because of the way they'd married engineering and architecture together. You could see the engineering, but they turned it into the architecture. It's got that incredible sort of half well the two sides it's kind of triangular shaped and two sides of it are concrete and the front side is this dramatic glazed facade with bracing and balconies it's it's an incredible building they actually moved there was like this historic castle at the bottom that they moved they actually picked it up and slid it out of the way while they built the skyscraper and then slid it back in and built some of the lobby around that building you can see in the in the video we did in it yeah and in the pictures that 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 castle is now that historic heritage house thing is now part of the lobby of that building and it was one of the first videos i did that properly blew up i remember it got like i think it got 70,000 views and i was like oh whoa 70,000 views this is huge <laughs> so uh yeah thanks to reformer for helping me on my way <laughs> great building <laughs> maybe that's where i recognize it mate from, yeah. from one of those old <laughs> P&M videos. Deep down, it's like resonating with me. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I love when uh, towers, you know, mix sort of engineering with design. I think it just, it, it, it's so, when, when it's executed well, you know, I think it's so refreshing as well to just your traditional glass-clad buildings. Because, you know, there's a few of those in every single city. In a, I know we're, we're sort of London-based here anyway, so we do talk... We end up talking about London a lot naturally, but the cheese grater, Leadenhall building in London, is similar. You know, you see a lot of the... Just how things work. You know, the, the elevators are at the back of that building, and you can see them just going up and down. And it's like... I don't know. I think that's really refreshing in an environment where, and we'll we'll talk about this later because I think there's a skyscraper, there's a new skyscraper design in Dubai uh, that's been recently announced. It's like, oh yeah, that's pretty much what every. It feels like a lot of cities around the world are doing the exact same thing, and I don't know. I think this is more like lasting design as opposed to just like fashion. Do you know what I mean? I agree. Yeah. I think anyone that's worked in a project team will know how difficult it is to properly marry and coordinate architecture and engineering to that degree. And but when it when it's pulled off, when it happens, it's absolutely incredible. I, I particularly was struck by on the Elizabeth Line in London, the way they'd married engineering and architecture was was remarkable. So so yeah, it's impressive. I actually saw I saw a meme on the internet this week and it was a, a parent oh. feeding a baby in a high chair some greens, right? And the baby's like face is congealing. And the the baby was labelled architects. The parent was labelled engineer, and the food on the fork was columns. <laughs> and the, the architects are like, we don't want columns in that. And the engineer's like, you got to have some columns. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> when you talk about, if we think about here in Mexico, and you talk about mar- marrying architecture and engineering. If you look at Torre Paradox, uh, completed several years ago, it has this. Uh, shift in the floor plate where you end up with a bit of a cantilever uh, halfway up this tower. So uh, you think about this in a seismic zone and then it's a lasting uh, sort of engine uh, architecture with this kink in the building. And then I think also as a, a, a contractor getting the elevators, keeping the elevator shaft lined up through that. And then 
from an interior design standpoint, it's a residential building, how the the location of the central core actually moves around the floor plate because the floor is shifting over as it as it goes up. It's it's quite a beautiful building if you look that one up as well. Yeah, I've just yes. Googled that. That is unreal. Yeah. Have you done the yeah. same, Liam? Yeah, looks great, doesn't it? Yeah, and the cladding looks really good. That's one. That's a pet peeve of mine is when you see a design of the building, it's built and the cladding looks rubbish. Cladding yeah. looks like, yeah, it's just been value engineered to death. And uh, wow. no, this looks this looks incredible. Man, like Me- Mexico has some really nice high-rise architecture, doesn't it? Really, really, really nice. Really impressive. Well, Mexico has some fabulous architecture going back centuries, but also in the 20th century, it was, a, a, I think, a real hotbed of some of the modern architecture and uh, throughout. So if you if you spend some time in Mexico, particularly in the large cities like Mexico City, Guadalajara, uh, it's, it's worth spending some time not only on the, the Spanish colonial architecture, which is, of course, beautiful in its right, but then also the 20th century and late 20th century architecture. Mm. Yeah, it's a remarkable place. I'm, re- I'm really pleased we could lift up this story on the B1M this year. Also, early in the year, we covered the huge Tremaya infrastructure projects uh, out on the Yucatan Peninsula, the massive railway that's being built out there. So, yeah, some phenomenal projects happening, some phenomenal engineering happening, and uh, really pleased to talk about them on, on the B1M. Let us know what you think about this, guys. Are you living in Mexico? Do you live in Mexico City or Monterey? Have you been in a Mexican skyscraper? What do you think of Mexico's skyscrapers? Let us know. Podcast at the B1M.com. So, as you guys know, we've got a very special guest on this week's episode, Matt Wheelis from the Nemeshek Group. I want to get to know you a bit better, Matt, if that's okay. We want to kind of dive in, explore your career, what you've been doing, and kind of where you see construction headed. I guess, starting at the beginning, what made you come into construction? So, I grew up in a small town in central Texas. And down the street, uh, a block away from where I grew up, there was a construction yard for, a, I guess, the largest contractor in town, which would be considered quite a small contractor uh, today. They even they built my dad's dental office. And so I was always fascinated by the equipment going in and out, by the, the process of construction. So I went off to college and majored in accounting, which makes no sense whatsoever. But uh, I, I did that. <laughs> and... After interning with a big city, big four firm, I uh, didn't like as an audit intern, I hated every moment of that after my junior year. And so I decided that I would, in fact, go back and become a contractor. So all I knew to do to do that was to go get a master's degree in civil engineering. Um, I did so, Texas A&M. And then I, uh, you know, so, so that's how I got into construction. Uh, after at the end of during graduate school, my uh, wife talked me into hiking the Appalachian Trail while we when we finished, and so we her family had moved to Atlanta. That the trail started in Georgia, and so uh, that we decided that after we finished our master's degrees there at A and M, we would then hike on the Appalachian Trail. So we lived in her parents' basement for a few months to save up three or four thousand dollars so we could go hiking, and we. In doing so, we had gotten some internships, you know, kind of postmasters internships with uh, with firms. Uh, she and her field, and me in construction. And 
and so that that's how we got you know started in Atlanta in the construction business and and did a bit of hiking over the summer. We didn't finish. I was uh, so determined to go start my career that I wanted to get back and and stop hiking and go work. A little public service announcement I'll make for anybody uh, who's mid twenties and wanting to explore something before working, keep exploring because once you start working, it's hard to stop. <laughs> um, but you know, that's how I, how I got into, into construction. And how did you actually get into the, um, into the industry from that, Matt? Uh, so, yeah. So when I, my master's thesis had had something to do with simulating construction processes. This is why I really like that Peachtree Plaza, uh, hotel there and and had the word computer in it a bunch of times. So when I started there, they were, this company uh, was working with a a startup in the Atlanta area, a a small company to make a project management database for themselves on access. Uh, And so they saw me come in and I knew something about computers. And so they said, basically, hey, kid, you tell this company how, what, what to do. And so I started spending my time in addition to working on interior construction and capital uh, uh, facilities kind of uh, projects for owners around Atlanta, like uh, Turner Properties or CNN and that sort of thing. I started spending some of my time going to job sites and finding out what their needs were from a project management standpoint. Uh, We discovered that we really needed to be connected with the field. Uh, We then redid the the work or, or this company redid the work i won't take credit for it on the internet so we were doing rfis and submittals and transmittals and that sort of thing over the over the web connecting our job sites with the office and it's what became constructware and in 1999 they hired me as their product manager uh, and so that's how i got over in the technology side uh, after spending a few years both in technology and in the field uh, okay. So what was your career path like from joining to today? So it, it sounds kind of strange to say, well, I'm now a strategy person for a, a technology firm that, that uh, is operating out of Munich, Germany. Uh, <laughs> and how did you get from a small town in the middle of Texas to, to, to this kind of role? In hindsight, it's somewhat linear, and I'll tell the story that way, but going forward, you couldn't have predicted it. So because I got this leap from the field into the technology side, we were then acquired by a, a, a one of my now rivals, uh, Autodesk in 2006, and I spent about 11 years there uh, learning the various uh, fa- parts of how to be in the software business and uh, developed my career from product into some go-to-market strategy and that sort of thing there. I really felt I had a gap in uh, the selling side. So I joined another firm to in a selling role uh, in, in the US, uh, the division of Hexagon called Leica Geosystems, and spent a few years uh, doing that. And uh, in 2020, was very pleased to have the opportunity to go back really fully into the software side, because that had been a hardware business largely, uh, into software with with Hexagon, I mean, with, uh, with Nemechek, and, uh, and to get to, to get Bluebeam in the portfolio, which was uh, to me a, a game changer to have a, a product there that has so many customers and to start thinking about so strategically, what does this mean? You know, how do we help those customers 
with what they do today and also on how they uh, move forward into getting that information into the field, how they connect that with BIM, uh, et cetera. So that's what I spend time on today. So it sounds linear in retrospect. I moved from the field to uh, helping the field to actually being directly in technology and, and move through uh, product marketing, selling roles, but that's a, a little less linear uh, going forward than it sounds in reverse. I think, I think Matt's quite modest, but he's had a, yeah. you've had a very senior frontline major role at all of these places. And you, you've literally, to me, had one of the, the major roles in the digitization of this industry over the last few decades. And I think what speaks, I'm going to embarrass you now, but what speaks volumes is wherever I go, any construction conference, people know Matt, they've heard of Matt, and they deeply respect Matt and his contribution to the industry. And I think that yeah, you can't fake that. You can't make that up. And I think that speaks volumes more than anything you can say or your career journey. It speaks volumes of the role you've played at each of those companies and the impact you've had on the industry. So yeah, big thanks on behalf of Construction for your work to digitize the sector. It's been awesome. Now you're literally making me blush. Yeah, I've got to get my revenge. I've got to get my revenge. <laughs> you know, my, the, the, the thing I would hope to be able to to accomplish in this this part of my career, I won't say the last part of my career, but um, <laughs> you know, I'm I've been doing this a while. Uh, would be to to have a real impact on the people who who wear tools and who are uh, who are actually building the buildings. I think the impact uh, to date has been focused on on folks that are in the office that might not put on a hard hat or a helmet. Hopefully nowadays, uh, uh, instead of a hard hat. Uh, even though over my shoulder is actual is a hard hat, um, but yeah, that would be my hope is to to be able to you know feel like I've impacted those people who actually physically build for us. What would you say? Just just listening to all of that, Matt. What would you say uh, throughout your entire sort of career is the most you enjoy about construction? Great question. Um, <clears throat> I very much like the physical nature of construction. It, it's a satisfying thing. Uh, I remember even on the little projects I did doing tenant improvements and, and uh, that sort of thing earlier in my career to be able to uh, to look at that and, and say, look, we did that. Uh, I would have, I would see and, and talk to some of the craftspeople on the project and they would say, talk about how they would, they would, I would, was asked permission one time to, to bring their kids down and, and, you know, see the job site. So we met them and let them in and, and let them do that to, to see people that are so proud of, of what they do and to want to show uh, their families what they do, I think is, is amazing. And I love the people. And also that you really don't build the same thing twice. I think that perhaps in a, you know, some of the things we're working on today to, to make this a more repeatable process with, with more factory built construction, that, that part might, get lost a little bit in that, but the fact that you're you're not doing the same thing twice. We can talk about all these different skyscrapers in Mexico and not, no two of them are exactly alike. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a very challenging time for the industry right now. You know, there's, there's a skills shortage, there's a labor shortage in the industry, there's massive supply chain issues globally. We're under pressure to build more housing, more affordable housing, faster there's pressure on us to become more efficient to digitize to improve building quality it feels like when you go around construction conferences and you talk to people in the industry it feels like there's this like perfect storm of challenges right now i guess like what what do you think lies ahead like what's the way out of this and what advice would you give people 
over the years ahead? Where, where do you see things heading in the next few years? Big question, I know. <laughs> it is a big question. The, the availability of skilled labor is absolutely existential. And it's something we've been talking about for several years, and it hasn't you know, particularly improved. Um, there may be a little relief with the, the, the cost of capital causing a, a, a bit of a, a slowdown in, in some sectors, but still the, we, we have in, in all the mature economies and, and probably in, in a number of, of other parts of the world, uh, this challenge around the cost of housing. Uh, you know, I think I mentioned as we were uh, chatting at the beginning, I have two children who are about to go off in, in the world. They're in college right now. And the it was not a question when I got out of college that I'd be able to afford to buy a home. I bought one in my mid twenties and then that is, you know, and I've, I'm in my second house at this point. So it's been, it's been a good and stable thing for me. Um, and I don't see, you know, the, 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 the same affordability is there, even though they're both going into uh, professions that will be pretty high earning. And if I extend that to then the, you know, with one a mechanical engineer and another one computer science major, those are, are pretty strong positions to be in. And I think about then if people are, are not even that fortunate in terms of the earnings, how, what, you know, where would they live? So, I, I, you know, we have a challenge before us to, to solve for this, to bring um, more affordable housing in particular to others. So as office use changes, then perhaps there'll be more and more uh, reuse of those properties into residential in a way that, that the you know, the, the structure is already there and, and, you know, there may be more affordable ways to accomplish that. So yes, the availability of labor is, is the, a, a key challenge. And so what I see ahead is that there will be more automation of tasks. There will be application mm. of, uh, whether it's robotics or, or automation, like for example, uh, Cavazzo uh, is a, Kawazo is a company out of Munich. Uh, we, we, have uh, we're, we're partnered with, and they have a, a lift, a, a semi-automated lift that essentially takes a, a crew of three down to one or two for moving uh, a scaffold up materials up a scaffold in a in a smart kind of way. They can measure production, so that's a you know a, the kind of thing I see coming in. So there, I think this vision of like totally robotic job site with things that crawl up and and do all the tasks is not uh, particularly realistic or or maybe even desirable, but one that takes uh, some of the backbreaking work out of, of construction and extends the career of, of craftspeople, the, the people who really know how to do the work like, like masonry, let's let them do that, but not have them picking up block, you know, that sort of thing. And that will uh, stretch the crew and also extend careers. I think that's a very helpful way to think about it. That and panelized offsite construction, maybe even volumetric, is going to be uh, an important factor as well. Absolutely. I mean, you say it's a, an existential crisis, the the labour shortage, and I I completely agree with you. I think a lot of the challenges we can get young people inspired about construction, but then the the influences in their lives, their parents, their teachers at school, say, no, you'd be better suited to go into another career. You'd be better suited over here somewhere. Construction is kind of seen as a bit of a a dead end route at times. So what we try to do with the B1M is is educate the educators and inspire the adults as well as the children because we need the whole world to see construction in a different way for people to properly get what this industry is, what it needs, and the ability you have here to come in and impact climate change, housing, shape our hospitals, our schools, our cities, our infrastructure. You can literally shape the world with with this industry. 
what advice would you give to people out there? So, you know, young people listening or adults listening who are working a career they hate, they're looking to change jobs, or have got young kids and they're not sure what they want them to do with their lives. What advice would you give them about coming into construction? Would you, yeah, what would you say to young people or anybody? Well, I would say, <laughs> uh, yeah, to young people, of course, I would say that it, it is worth a very serious look at the various not to look at construction monolithically. So I think it's important to think about like, what are those, you know, key areas of, of, of intelligence or aptitude you have and, and, and explore those ways that would help that become, uh, you know, be a part of what you do. So for example, if you are a very detail oriented person who really enjoys uh, uh, doing something very precisely, uh, then, you know, for example, being a certified welder and, on, on a high end welder is a, a great place to be. Um, I've even heard uh, at the uh, one, one of the union training centers, they said that they find that uh, young women are sometimes uh, faster to adapt to that than some of their male counterparts because they do, they're patient and they're willing to do, you know, that precise work needed to, to get that well done right the first time. So that can be a, a, a great area to focus. If you really enjoy, uh, you know, op- operating or, or, you know, that sort of thing, then equipment operation and, and that sort of thing can be good as well. And these are all, uh, you know, high skilled jobs that pay quite well. Uh, I, you know, be- becoming I have a, a family friend whose uh, son is working toward uh, a role in, I believe, it's electrical trades. And it's just a, a great career that that is always going to be needed. Um, and the more we get into uh, 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 data centers and, and other ways of, of building, those are just jobs that are are, are uh, in high demand. To answer the question to the to the parents in the room, I think it's worth looking at the not only the the peak career earnings, uh, but also the, the 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 fast start to higher earnings that comes in construction, because there can be a very long phase of of fantastic earnings in construction. Uh, whether it's in the trades or as they discover that they're very good at leading people to move into a role as a superintendent and then potentially as a, as a project manager. I've known people leading uh, multi-billion dollar construction firms that never went to college. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, such, such a powerful message. I think for all the engineering and the challenges around the, the, the practicalities of construction, you're right, it's all about people and effectively leading people is a, is a huge skill that people need. So, so yeah, no, it's fantastic to talk to you, man. We really appreciate your your insight, your expertise. I love the way you started uh, well, you started by telling us how you started out on a hike. It's kind of like you're still on that still on that journey now, which is, which is nice, <laughs> just in a different form. So, no, really appreciate you talking to us. It's been, uh, it's been awesome. Also in the news this week, guys, we've got some fantastic construction progress pictures that have emerged of the Richard Gilder Center for Science, Education and Innovation at the American Museum of Natural History, which is a bit of a mouthful that sounds very dull and unexciting, but it's actually absolutely epic. It's incredible. There's this curving concrete formed structure that's being built in the heart of the American Museum of Natural History in the middle of New York, very tight site. They're trying to unify the museum by bringing basically by creating a new structure that unifies a number of existing buildings it's beautiful you've got curving organic formed concrete the idea is to well it's kind of inspired by nature 
and the idea is to encourage visitors to flow and move through the space. Personally, I love it. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think it's great, mate. It, it reminds me of a, a place, it, you're going to think it's quite random, in the middle of Turkey called Cappadocia. It's like this uh, town that's known for it. It's like unique moonlight yes. landscape, underground cities, underground caves, churches. I, I stayed yeah. there. I went there a couple of years ago. Very similar. Very nice. Looks looks great. Yeah, you you hit the nail on the head, Fred. With uh, organic, it looks organic, um, and it looks like you want to explore it. And I think that's 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 the point. Um, I can't lie, mate. I think this is absolutely gorgeous. There's not a lot wrong with it. Not a lot wrong with it, Fred. Um, yeah, as soon as it opens, I'd love to visit. I'd love, 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 love to visit. It looks outstanding. Maybe one of the best like museum projects we've seen on here from my from yeah, from my from my point of view. It's beautiful. I think these organic forms can be very complementary to the existing architecture around and not compete with it so much and not also try to replicate it in a way that doesn't show up correctly because it seems this is between some old old limestone buildings. Uh, and when you build new limestone next to old limestone, you need to wait another hundred years for it to start to look like it fits in. So I think it's 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 complimentary. I like it. Oh, that's a good answer. That <laughs> is a really, really good answer. I told you, this I'd guy expect- knows what he's doing. He knows yeah, what he's doing. I'd expect nothing else. I'd expect nothing else. Yeah. It does like that thing it. where you, you, you get that feeling, I don't know if you guys agree, when you walk into a museum, that feeling of awe and that moment where it almost like takes your breath away. It's like, oh, wow. Like I get it in the Natural History Museum in London, when you walk in now, they've got that enormous blue whale skeleton hanging from the ceiling. It's absolutely enormous in a very beautiful historic Victorian structure. You get it with this as well. Like it's in the middle of New York, as Matt said, there's these very sort of traditional, kind of stereotypical, big, bold museum type buildings, very sort of formal. And then you get this incredible organic form that is a remarkable feat of construction. To build that mm-hmm. on a site this small in the middle of Manhattan. Is, is an incredible undertaking, an incredible feat of construction. So, yeah, I think it's going to be, well, it looks impressive already. It's going to be very impressive when it finishes, when it opens. I think you'll get that moment when you walk in and go, oh, wow, I feel inspired. I feel awe-inspired. I think that's the job of a museum, in my view. Also this week, we are heading over to Dubai, where some new vertical forest skyscrapers have been announced to coincide with COP27, the big climate change summit that's currently taking place over in Egypt. So these are designed by Stefano Boweri Architects, who you guys will know was the same firm behind Milan's famous Bosco Verticale, those two twin towers in Milan that are covered in trees that you'll see pretty much everywhere. Very, very famous structures. They're doing the same thing again in Dubai. These buildings are going to be 150 and 190 metres respectively, so just into that little skyscraper category. Several thousand trees and plants across their levels, very kind of organic looking. We've got a classic Dubai render with the Burj Khalifa in the background, just so you know where you are. Seems to be what they do in Dubai. What do you guys think of this? Is it practical? Is it real? Is it greenwashing? It's kind of a concrete building I f- still. Mm. I feel like if if there's one city that's going to actually live up to the renders, it's going to be Dubai. You know, when we did the, the spiral documentary in New York, <clears throat> and it was covered in trees, and then some of the team were in New York, and they were sending us photos, and it, and it it was just like yeah, it was, did not look anything like it. But I feel like if Dubai's going to do it, I feel like they'll actually do it justice. Oh, maybe I'm a bit more skeptical. I don't know. 
You knew it. I was trying you to be positive on it for once, mate. I was trying to be positive yeah, on no. it. <laughs> I, I do think I do think actually this this definitely looks like um you know the Bosco Verticales like older brother you know um it looks it, it's taller um the shape is more like contemporary it, it, it's it's really interesting it's a really really interesting tower um it could look excellent I'm just not so sure. Um, that there are obviously people looking at this um, who are way more qualified than I am. But you know, the greenery would need to be able to withstand, you know, just wind for one thing, like high winds. Um, but also, you know, the, the intense heat of Dubai in the summer. You know, that's that's not an easy thing, and it's not like. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's probably just my ignorance playing into it. To be honest, it's, but, it's a theme. It's a theme picked up in the comments, Luke. Like there's there's this idea mm. of the project's intended to bring urban forestry to Dubai, but some of the comments are like, "Wow, building a forest in a desert! What a great idea! How much water is that going to use?" Right, right, you know? right, right. It's um, there is a bit of that. There is a bit of that. I mean, it's it's impressive, and I actually like the design. But what I was alluding to earlier is that. Um, how many times in like this podcast isn't even a year old, right? How many times have we talked about a skyscraper <laughs> with trees on it? Like it's it, like it seems like every city's trying to do it. And it's kind of come out of nowhere. It's like Milan did it for the for, for the expo. I think they were they were getting ready for the expo like years and years and years ago, and they were like, "Look at these court," and they got some really really beautiful looking skyscrapers out in Milan. Um, and I think that, yeah, they did it. They were the original ones. They, they did it really well. But it seems like everything since then is maybe, I don't know, an imitation. I, th- I think that the intention is really good. The, the idea of urban greening and bringing trees into our urban areas, there's all kinds of benefits. There's, there's the biophilic architecture benefits where you're connecting people with nature. There's all the well-being benefits that come with that. It can cool our cities down. It can improve air mm. quality. It, it looks great, frankly. It looks really nice. It does. You're right, the practicalities of having large trees up on skyscrapers and what happens if branches fall, what happens when leaves fall, the maintenance, the safety. They've done it in Milan, but it's quite interesting that that's not globally widespread. It appears in the renders. It doesn't often appear much on the actual buildings. Worth saying, in the defense of the spiral in New York, when I went in September, it was a lot greener. Uh, I think I mentioned that before. I don't know if they've uh, heard this podcast yeah. and gone, goodness me, go and plant some plants quickly. But it is looking, it's looking better. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think, Matt? Is this, is this, is this going to last? Is it growing on you? Right. Yeah, oh. I, I live in a city that's known as Tree City USA, so I'm accustomed to lots of urban forest. But it's it's uh, if you fly into Atlanta, you'll see that you don't really see rooftops; you see trees everywhere. And so that's been a fan. so I'm a big believer in in the benefits of the green. Uh, that said, also I'm I'm looking at this uh, image of, of setting this up in the desert and thinking about uh, much like maybe grass in Las Vegas, what kind of a long term commitment this is to the use of water, uh, and what kind of a uh, in, in a and growing things that don't normally grow there. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if they can do it in such a way that it's it's using uh, trees that are, are somewhat native to that area, the the palms, what have you, that are accustomed to uh, to, to that sort of thing might work well. I, I would get concerned about the, the long-term commitment to maintaining that, that treescape. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. We did a video a few weeks ago uh, on Arizona, well, Phoenix, Arizona, and what they're doing there to kind of try and combat urban heat. There's some extreme temperatures now in Phoenix, Arizona. And there's an urban greening strategy there, but they're very much doing it with native species, with desert plants and things like that. So there's, a, there's obviously, it's not as effective as different types of tree species that you might find in, in Europe or more uh, temperate climate cities. But yeah, you're right. It needs to be the right species for the right location, doesn't it? If it's going to be successful without creating huge water demands. Yeah, my, my daughter spent the summer at Oak Ridge National Labs uh, working on some MI... Uh, uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning stuff related to urban heat island impact. And I don't think they modeled any buildings that have green on them. So it might be interesting to see what, what that looks like, but they were, it does make me think about what is the impact you could have on the, on the heat island and how could that reduce that? If you think about cities like uh, Madrid that are very concrete intensive intensive, uh, we were there last winter, and there's a marked difference in temperature between uh, being any of the park areas and when you get close to any of those buildings because they've retained so much heat. That's that's incredible, isn't it? That is so interesting, so interesting, and it's so in land as well, isn't it, Madrid? So yeah, there's. Uh, I don't know with, with with these towers, Fred. It just seems like it's maybe a bit of a fashion statement and a bit of a gimmick, you know. And, and uh, without trying to I don't know, disrespect the city of Dubai. Dubai is all about that sometimes, right? Dubai is like, oh, yeah, what's the latest trend? We'll jump on that. Let's do it. We'll just chuck money at it. And it's like, mm, I don't know. I don't know. But if if, if, it, if it comes out looking like what it does in renders, there's no doubt that that is a beautiful looking structure. It that is. is a really, really nice structure. So Definitely. let's see. And, and Stefano Boweri do have a record for this. There is, Bos- as I said, Bosco Verticali in Milan is there it's built it's got trees on it. it looks incredible i mean how practical it's it is, in milan is but yeah <laughs> yes it's in milan <laughs> <laughs> different climate but uh yeah it remains to be seen we will come back in a few years time uh, and replay this segment where lucas said it's never going to happen and uh watch him eat his words when the finished construction from pictures come out or not or we'll just do it in a few years time when it's been cancelled and I can eat my words instead. So, <laughs> for balance. I'd love to see this sort of thing a few kilometers back from the waterfront where you don't have as much of the uh, the benefit of the cooling of the water and see if the, the transpiration from all those plants does uh, create a bit of a uh, of some movement of air upward, a, a bit of a cooling effect the way it does in a, if you go into a forested area here. Mm. Absolutely. It's going to be interesting to see. Either that or they'll catch fire. <laughs> we'll have to find out we'll have to find out but Matt it's been awesome having you thanks for thanks for being part of you survived the podcast how did you find the experience it's a fantastic experience I enjoy the conversation always great to connect with people ar- around the world who are uh, committed to architecture engineering and construction fantastic thanks for having us Matt it's been been great to being here thanks for thanks for taking the time to be part of this podcast uh, thank you for the opportunity thanks Let's Matt know we- thanks Matt <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Fred. (laughs) (laughs) We'll let you know something at some point. (laughs) What were you going to say? I was going to wrap up, but I've now talked over. You guys say thanks, Matt, again. All right, yeah. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Great to have you on here. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. Let us know what you thought about this episode, guys. Let us know what you thought about Mexico's skyscraper boom and some of the incredible feats of engineering going on there. 
the Richard Gilder Center uh, down in New York's American Museum of Natural History. Let us know what you thought of that. And also Dubai's vertical forest skyscraper. Is it going to happen? Is it going to be a thing? Send us your comments, podcast at the B1M.com and we will see you next week. Thank you.